0: So our mission not only is to just grow our business organically as it is, but to be a good corporate citizen to our cross-functional teams within Intel because the data-driven society and economy these days, with our devices and uh, the 5G and the Internet of Things, and you know everything's generating data. There's- how many? Uh, there are metrics about how much data is generated every day, even every second. and It's mind-boggling. Indeed. So we're not doing acceleration or acceleration. Sake. It's the fact that your application. Is awesome.
1: Welcome to Conversations with Des. I'm Des Blanchard, your host. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined in the studio by Jim Dworkin. Now, Jim is a senior director in the Cloud Business Unit, a programmable solutions group at Intel. Jim, thanks so much for making time to join us on the show. Welcome.
0: Thank you so much. It's a great honor to be with you. And uh, even though I just essentially met you virtually in the last week or so, it's, uh, you know, I've come to really, really enjoy your company.
1: Ah, you're too kind. Thank you so much. Well, the feeling is entirely mutual. So we're going to have a conversation around field programmable gate arrays, and in particular eASICs, which we'll get you to explain in a moment. Uh, uh, we know what an application-specific integrated circuit is, but Intel's got their, their version of it as far as a brand name goes. We're also going to talk about uh, three key things that I, I know our audience is dying to hear about from yourself. And the first one is, I guess, you know, current macro trends that are driving the development and adoption of FPGAs, et cetera going like to talk about some of the challenges and opportunities around the adoption of FPGAs and where they fit. And the non-traditional spaces, so not necessarily the traditional AI and machine learning we hear a lot about in the media, but the, the more traditional sort of in-the-field stuff and hardware And we'll talk about in a moment. And we're also going to then wrap up with how Intel's working with customers and partners to find those opportunities for success and how to leverage FPGAs for a whole range of reasons, either technical or business benefit. And now, you've got an amazing job title. I, I can imagine that you jump out of bed every day wanting to do that. I, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of our listeners who are very envious of that. And I'd love to get a little bit of an insight, a bit of a behind-the-scenes, what is a day in the life of Jim? Working in your role. But before we do that, Jim, I wonder if you'd mind if we did a little sideways segue for a moment, just a couple of minutes around you personally, a bit of background of just to let our audience get to know you. Where are you originally from? Maybe where you grew up? Some of the early influence in your life? Was there somebody that inspired you to go down this path in business and technology? And maybe some insights into your academic career path that sort of got you to this amazing job.
0: Thank you for asking. Well, uh, I'm the son of uh, immigrants from Poland so they uh, got out of Poland uh, pre-World War II, and if you've ever seen the musical Fiddler on the Roof, kind of imagine that setting in a little village in Poland and coming out of that. Um, made their way into the US, and my parents were married uh, in New York City and made their way down as federal government workers in the US, uh, settled in and around uh, Washington, DC, where I was born. So I grew up and spent you know the first 20 years of my life in Maryland. Uh, in a little town called Kensington, and a uh, you know, beautiful place to grow up. Yeah, academically, yeah, I I went undergraduate, did my undergraduate work at Cornell in the engineering college, and then after that four years, uh, I got out and I wasn't burned out like many of my uh, friends were. So I decided I, I knew I wanted to get deeper into a topic, and I was in the electrical engineering department in Cornell. Computer engineering was kind of became a love of mine. The LSI technology uh, was pretty new at the time, and we had a course at Cornell where you could actually design a circuit, in, um, design a chip in the fall. They'd fab it over the winter break, and then you come back and test it in, uh, in the spring. Mine was supposed to play the game Mastermind if you know that one with the colors and the yeah. four pegs, yeah. uh, that you have to guess. Uh, I think that the the port ship had latch-up issues, so it actually never functions. Function, but it was you know, really cool and it created a spark in me to go into the LSI uh, design. I went to the University of Maryland uh, back home um, for my uh, master's in computer engineering, master's of science, and I came up uh, through Motorola for about the first half of my career, I'm about 30 years in. Halfway through, I decided that I was really happy doing engineering work, but I was fascinated by the business side. That led me to go into an MBA program, so I was uh, fortunate enough to be sponsored by Motorola for that and uh, got my master's uh, in business at the Arizona State University where I lived. And Then uh, my wife and I, my wife is from the Bay Area here, the San Francisco Bay Area, so we made our way up here with our three kids at the time after that. And uh, we had our fourth boy and here we sit. So, um, wow, that's how I got here. Definitely was inspired at Cornell by that, that course we talked about and a, an advisor who said, Hey, this, you know, this semiconductor thing's gonna, well, I think it's going to take off. So, <laughs> um, that was, that was bad. It was, uh, I also looked up to the likes of Steve jobs and, and was, you know, who were, yeah. Industry, uh, you know, luminaries, and I, I really admired their not only their success and their innovation, but their 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 way of simplifying things. You know, taking complex problems and making them simple for humans, and and then actually later in life, last thing I'll say is uh, I really started to get into reading about philosophy. So, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens was a um, big influence on me, and A.C. Grayling is another one of his peers who wrote about humanism. So I've really done a lot of thinking a little bit later in my midlife here about uh, our relationship to each other as humans and to the planet and so on.
1: Wow it 's an amazing background and, and and probably what I would imagine the perfect pedigree to to the role you're currently holding now and and uh, looking into to some of your career path you 've held some amazing jobs and amazing job titles and But I love the fact that you you had that early formative uh, influence around the large scale integration work you did and i guess it's it 's uh, the perfect kind of uh, lead into where you are now with with what you 're doing with around FPGAs and, and, and at intel um, yeah. but it it seems to me like you 've got this this very natural evolution of kind of where you've developed as an individual and, and your skill set in your, mm-hmm. your career. And I love the fact you've got your, your MBA as well as a deeply technical background because you've, in my mind, I think a lot of uh, thought leaders or business leaders who are either one or the other have a very skewed view of the world with the greatest respect to them, whereas people have got a, a balance of, of business capabilities and skills and experiences such as an MBA, but also the technical yeah. engineering background. Can balance it out and find the, the opportunities for either a business benefit or a technology benefit in the same sentence and and I think that's mm-hmm. more and more rare these days, right, but I think that's fascinating that, that must have held you in good stead in each of these key roles uh, being able to balance that
0: it it really has, and it's hard, uh, as you were talking, I was thinking it's hard to appreciate on a day to day basis you know yourself and your mindfulness about your own life, but there was a point like halfway through my career where I said. Okay, wait a minute. Let me make a decision here. When I'm going to project myself out into my retired self, what do I want to look back on my life arc? And yeah, you know, I have my wife and my kids, and and I want to bring them up well. And I want to look back on my career, and I want to say that I challenged myself. I I have a love of learning, and uh, that as an engineering. you know, individual contributor, leading into a, a leader, more and more leadership roles, and I was a co-founder of Motorola's security technology center, which was kind of on par at the time with PowerPC, Somerset and MCore and StarCore DSP, all these core technology centers, and we started up the security one. And I thought, well, you know, this is this is great, but I was kind of more on the introverted side, and I didn't want to just come to work and sit in an office all day. I wanted to force myself to go out and. Be with you know, say a sales organization. Be with more type A people and challenge myself. And even though I knew I knew, I thought about this often. It was going to be kind of you know challenging as a human being to go out there and deliberately put myself off balance. But I knew it would make me a better human. And when I look back in my life, I would have that arc of yeah, I did. You know, I didn't just stick to the same thing. I was always learning. And that's maybe not for everyone. It, it worked for me, and it, it did allow me to carve. Quite a diverse um, you know, application set, done different roles at different companies, as you said, and I think it's, it's given me a, more of that 360-degree view of what it takes to be successful in, in business.
1: Oh, that's fantastic, and congratulations on an amazing career so far, and I, I think you've got some amazing things ahead of you to do yet, and in, in, in your current role in particular. So we're going to have a conversation around the whole topic of field programmable gate arrays, and 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 I'd love to kind of, you know, we, we were talking off record a little bit now, uh, but I just want to sort of highlight this bullet point, and that is that we were talking earlier about the fact that, you know, FPGAs are getting a lot of attention in sort of the I guess what we generally talk about artificial intelligence space, but particularly machine learning and, and, and less case deep learning at the stage. But I want to kind of put that aside and look at the the more broad and, and deep usages of FPGAs that you're seeing there in space. Before we dive into a couple of the key topics I wanted to talk about, I wonder if you could maybe just set the scene for us of kind of where you're primarily focused with FPGAs and, and the types of segments and markets areas that you're sort of covering with that just to set the scene. Uh, and then I'd love to sort of dive into what a day in the life of, of, of Jim Dworkin's like. But just as far as the, the FPGA context is concerned, can you maybe set the scene for out, outside the sort of the broad AI and ML space? What are some of the key areas that FPGAs are fitting into in your world that you're sort of seeing, whether it's embedded or in devices and so forth?
0: Yeah, Ed. so where do FPGAs fit, and where we fit is in the data center space. So whether it's a cloud or an enterprise data center, they they have a certain you know topology: racks, rack switches, rack servers, storage boxes, and so on. And our our mission is to make it so that FPGAs become uh, easier to use and deploy, and and uh, unlock the benefits at scale in these data center applications and. So our mission not only is to just grow our business organically as it is, but to be a good good corporate citizen to our um, our cross-functional teams within Intel. Because I'm sure you hear this all the time, Des. Right? It's the it's the data-driven uh, society and economy these days with our devices and uh, the 5G and the Internet of Things and you know everything's generating data. There's, uh, how many uh, there are metrics about how much data is generated every day, even every second, and it 's mind boggling indeed so we 're not doing acceleration or acceleration 's sake it 's the fact that your application processors, which are typically xeon uh, CPUs, they get bottlenecked by either memory, i o um, storage, and so we 're unlocking the potential to act on all this data and make our lives better by smartly inserting um, FPGA technology uh, into data centers. And and it turns out that's a really
1: challenging and and fulfilling um, pursuit. Indeed, and in both commercially and technically, which we'll dive into a bit. Before we get into that, though, and thank you for that, because uh, I'd I like to be able to set the sort of scene for where we're going to dive into so that we make sure that people don't think we're going to go into more broad things around AI, because we cover that a lot. But I do like the idea of, of, of just the focus around the data center space. And as you said, whether it's, you know, in the traditional space, there are routers, switches, servers, and, and, and some of the elements inside those and where FPGAs fit, and we'll get into that. Um A day in the life of Jim Dworkin, it's a very broad role, but you you go very deep in each of these particular areas. Um, And I know that, you know, 2020 is one of those years where we sort of have to look at, you know, pre and post COVID-19 pandemic wise. If we park the pandemic for just for a moment, uh, without uh, being disingenuous about that, what is a normal day in the life of Jim Dworkin in your role like? What are the the sorts of challenges you're facing? What are the sort of focus points you're looking at from day to day around kind of just the remit of your role and, and, and the business you're part of?
0: Yeah, you know, our our business, our vertical business unit is expected to be expert on the markets and on the customers that we serve, and to know those dynamics, and have a feel for it, and have those connections. So we're the bridge between the horizontal product families of FPGAs and EAsics to mainly FPGAs to the sales team that thus has the scale to go out to our customers. So, you know, a day in the life for me, it's a it's a global role, it's a business development role, and uh, so we're measured on our revenue growth and our margin achievements, the, the normal business metrics, uh, and design wins. Um, now <clears throat> it's a global role, so it's, it's round the clock and I know, you know what that's like. Indeed. So it's typically, you know, it can be calls in the morning, get up and it's calls in the morning while you're having coffee and trying to get some breakfast in you and, and then getting into the commute here in the Bay area, which could be quite long at times and, uh, get into work and then you're having meetings and if you're lucky you can slip in some some actual work you know to do some powerpoint (laughs) or or some business analysis so so you're doing that most of the day and and having other calls and then when it gets to the evening time that's when asia wakes up so you're you, you know we're helping them but fundamentally what we're what we're really doing is driving solutions and so we drive for the creation of vertical uh impact vertically impactful solutions. And it might be in the area, uh, the new area of smart NICs. So basically processing infrastructure faster. Um, It's in the area of AI. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. It's in the area of storage. So moving the, uh, instead of moving the data to the compute, it's moving the compute out close to the data, tight coupling. And and we're playing around in really interesting applications like, you know, Hadoop or um, data the base applications, query data analytics, and, and putting the FPGA-based compute close to that data. So, you know, for me, a day in the life is—it's definitely a lot of meetings and a lot of uh, cross, uh, cross-company influence, um, bridge building, and then customer meetings, uh, things like that. So, yeah, that was that's pre-COVID. That's, that's the way it is.
1: Post-COVID, and po- yeah, and and it's a fascinating challenge, isn't it? Because I mean, a global role that you hold, a global structure of the business unit you are literally mm-hmm. potentially in seven different time zones every day potentially six days a week i imagine That's because right. you you know somebody's uh, friday is somebody else's saturday uh and and exactly. and, and you know uh, kudos to being able to juggle that and and everything else and stay sane and have a family life um <laughs> you, you know, I, I, there's some obvious things that, that we probably don't need to cover around the impact of COVID 19, but have there been any standout areas you've sort of seen, either highs and lows, with regard to how the whole shift from work, not just work from home, but also the, I guess, the longer days, the 14 hour days, or you know, whatever? Have there been any particular standout areas where that's had direct impact? But yeah. you, I imagine you've been able to look at how to then skew your operating model and and particularly supporting your ecosystem and partners around the world that Mm COVID-19 is brought about? What are some of the bigger impacts that that sort of had other than the obvious lockdowns?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and I'm feeling all of that too. I'm human and we're all going through it. And actually we do a lot of excellent things culturally within Intel to support each other. Our leaders are on point with Good messages about you know take care, take time for yourself, take a wellness day, um, get up, walk around, you know all these kinds of things. So I'm very, I feel very, very fortunate to be a company that puts such a high priority on its people because that's what really matters uh, at the end of the day. And um, for me, some of the interesting changes that have gone through is the uh, is the lack of travel and. In my job, we're frequently traveling to visit customers, to visit partners, to influence uh, the ecosystem and trade shows and other things it's like being out there. Now, the fact that we can't travel has made it you know, different, just like it is for everyone else. You have to do meetings over Zoom and so on, but there are less face-to-face customer meetings. And that means, well, we'll see You know what the impact is in a year, in two years, in five years from that, not being able to build the relationships uh, face-to-face and having that downtime, you know, have a, have a drink with them or whatever it is afterwards or lunch. So uh, I'm, inter- I'm interested to see how that will affect things, but we, we're we finding that we're being, um, I, I would say, as successful as we have been, if not more so, not just because we have great you know, products and solutions, uh, um, but... We're relying on our team more, our global team. So I think this is really favoring companies like Intel that have scale, and um, it's allowed us to. What's the right word? I mean, I, I have uh, someone in China that works for me, and he's collaborating closely with a bunch of our sales and marketing peers over there and support peers. Right. And he's getting much better at what he's doing because he's not waiting for me to get off a plane. You know, he's got to actually do. Uh, not that he wasn't doing before, but that's, you, you get my yes, point. It's yeah, yeah. A, I think it's made everybody have to kind of raise their game a little bit. So I think that's an interesting uh, twist, a positive twist. The other thing I'll talk about is that I've run 2 you'd never know it by looking at me now, but I've run two marathons, uh, full, full on marathons. And wow. well, to say I ran, ran them is maybe overstating <laughs> the situation, but I finished them uh, without stopping. So how about that? So, um, that's the way I feel every day. You know, right. long days, and I feel like I've by the end of it I've run a marathon, and uh, and then you just shut it down and wake up and do it all over again. So,
1: yeah, there's some some real. Fun. I mean, there's some real personal impacts, there's some societal impacts, there's a whole range of others. But you know, the thing that I have seen and and I've had some amazing conversations with a number of your your associates and peers across Intel as well. And you know, Intel was inside Southeast Asia building HPC clusters for the early reverse engineering the genomic uh, structure of the thing. Uh, You've got this amazing ecosystem of of partners and and customers you can tap into. But yeah, I think you've touched on a couple of interesting points there. It's kind of flattened the world in many ways and it's brought us closer, uh, but it has certainly taken a toll on all of us. And I'm sure you're you're no stranger to that in the long days and the the, the additional work hours. It'll, It'll be an interesting year in 2021 as we sort of figure out how we normalize that again, but we won't get into that now. You've mentioned uh, e and I wonder if we can just take a couple of seconds to sort of outline those, because a lot of people will probably, I mean, all of our audience mm-hmm. will know what an application-specific integrated circuit is and, and an ASIC. Um, but, but Intel has, uh, mm-hmm. I, I guess, a, a trademark, I think it is, from memory of the e which is essentially a structured ASIC from what I remember. So it's kind of like the, it's in between the FPGA and a traditional ASIC. I wonder if you can just give us a quick clarification of what an e is in your world.
0: Yeah, it's an it's it's such an amazing jewel that we have here and it's a differentiator for us because, uh, what it is, it's a structured ASIC. So it's an application specific integrated circuit where if you know how these things are built, they're, they have layers. So the circuitry is prebuilt to a certain level and then it's completed and customized at the, uh, uh, kind of like an FPGA, if you will, um, to connect the circuits up together, uh, in a way that's, that's uh, application-specific, you know, it's, it's for customers to decide. So it's a way that customers can get a much much shorter turnaround time to um, getting a, an ASIC than they would if they had to start their circuit from scratch and do a full tool, you know, tool set, um, development, uh, layout, place and route, um, verification, and so on. And then you tape out and you wait. So that's typically a can be like a two-year cycle, depending on the complexity, even up to three. But with eASIC, you could have your application-specific integrated circuit to your design in much less than a year. I mean, we've seen as as little as six months, and the cost to do it is, you know, roughly 10% of what it would be to do a full-on ASIC. And you can start with an FPGA and then convert into an eASIC. And the, the good thing about an eASIC is. That, you know, while you lose some of the, the hardware programmability that you get out of the full-on FPGA, fully field programmable, um, you you get the benefit of a smaller circuit, you get uh, lower power, so your compute per watt goes way up, in the, and the cost is much more optimized for what you want to do. So in certain situations, and uh, we're seeing more and more opportunities around this, the EASIC is a, a path that our scale customers want to go into.
1: Fantastic, and I'm sure we'll have you back on the show one day to have a long, lengthy conversation about that. Because I'm a reading that <laughs> I think, I think the latest one, and I looked at it early on was I think you codenamed it the Diamond Mess, or I think it was what is it the the ASIC five uh, N five X is it? My memory's slipping now, but um, I was fascinated because it's kind of like you know, there's this sort of you know blurring lines in many ways in a positive way between sort of you know what would become a an, an fpj and an asic and an, almost a system on chip because there's all those intelligent smart bits but the, the the purpose of it i was looking going hang on this is a 60 nanometer processor it's got like millions of asic gates it's it's almost like a quad core cpu <laughs> in many ways it's like wow where do we draw the line but we'll talk about that in another show but i definitely advise people listening to go and just have a look at Intel.com and, and have a look at the eASICs space and, and, and there's a whole bunch of great material there. But um, so today's conversation is specifically around FPGAs and, and I guess a, a range of key areas where I want to sort of get initially some, some view of sort of the sort of very broad macro trends and some of the things that are driving the development adoption around that and then talk about the technical business benefits people can glean from those. So... Let's just dive straight into the first thing. I mean, when we think about current macro trends broadly, what's driving the development and adoption of FPGAs for either a commercial or technical business benefit? Um, I wonder if you could share with us what you're seeing around the world as far as the current macro trends driving that development and adoption of FPGAs as so any of the key highlights you're sort of seeing, because you've got a very unique view of this space.
0: Yeah, sure. <clears throat> And some of these themes I touched on before, so I'm not going to deep dive into those, but it's uh, in, our, in our division for cloud and enterprise acceleration with FPGAs and the ASICs, we have sub-segmented into infrastructure use cases and application acceleration use cases. So infrastructure is, uh, has to do with the NIC, right? So it's, that's the, the card you plug into the server that gives it you know, network connectivity, so the NIC is evolving into a smart NIC where you have a compute element now on the card itself, and you can do more sophisticated workload infrastructure workloads, and that's become really popularized, in the, especially in the cloud, for um, uh, offloading the CPU. So if you're Amazon AWS or you're Microsoft Azure, as an example, you are renting out those cores. So every CPU cycle that you spend Doing infrastructure management of that server is a cycle that you're not monetizing, and so getting that that infrastructure workload off of the CPU uh, for bare metal cloud services uh, is very important, and it's that's value. Um, and the second thing, the other way is uh, virtualized. So in AWS, not only bare metal, you can also have, or Microsoft Azure, you can also have virtualized services, multi-tenant public cloud. And uh, SmartNICs are also high utility in in that kind of a space. And you can imagine at the scale that these data centers have, the hyperscalers and then the next wave, as we call it, that are growing into that scale, just because of all that data out there, uh, their infrastructure overhead is, is becoming quite large. So that's brought in the utility of the FPGA at scale. Microsoft famously selected the Altera FPGA to build its customized SmartNics that they deploy into every Azure server, and they've been public about that and how they've used it, and the fact that they've they've deployed uh, you know well over a million of them. Uh, and so we enjoy that that part of the business, but we've been able to successfully um, scale that. You know, sometimes there's a halo effect or a, a waterfall effect on on its peer group. It's kind of an arms race going on in the in the public cloud vendor space. So we've enjoyed um, some scale-out business from that. So FPGA is deployed at scale in, uh, in data centers for infrastructure acceleration is, is a thing. So we, we are uh, pushing the state of the art there. Wow, that's we're fascinating. Trying to, we just actually last, uh, this quarter in October, we launched our new platform. It's an FPGA cloud smart platform. So it's not an Intel product, but it, it basically replicates the architecture that the hyperscalers have commonly used by pairing one of our FPGAs, uh, high-performance FPGAs, with a Xeon-class system-on-a-chip SOC. So it's two two chips on a card, but it looks just like a smart – it is a SmartNIC uh, platform, and then we productize that through our partners. And so that gives the the, the Tier 2, the next wave, as I was saying, or the Tier 1.5 Uh, large scale data centers to get access to the same kinds of solutions and technologies that the hyperscalers have done in a DIY, do it yourself. Um, We're bringing that to the masses through our platform. So it's a hardware platform and a software, you know, it's got IP built into it to do these interesting types of use cases, like virtual switching and things like that. So that's been really very transformative uh, example.
1: Yes. The the hyperscalers are are fairly natural because 'cause they're always looking for economies of scale and 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 not just for for public use but also their own processing. And we were talking earlier and you mentioned the likes of Hadoop and 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 sort of, you know, we went down Mm -hmm. that path for a range of reasons because we might have had general purpose computers and sort of, you know, the pizza boxes, one and two IU machines. We stacked them up at low cost hardware and (laughs) yeah, who was famous with with this with our good friend Doug Cuttings and and Mike Caffarella when they sort of went through that process of the Google paper of, of what Google's doing and and, and then making that open source, we could use very cheap hardware to create these high-performance compute things for not just storage but compute, and we move the compute to where the data was. It seems to me now you're mm-hmm. sort of taking that edge compute-style model of saying that not only have you got the network interface uh, cards or the NICs and the smart NICs moving some intelligence there, where if we're doing data moves or data copies, you can provide some treatment to the data, but you're now sort of looking at all the constituent elements in between where you can either have it at the NIC level or in the server itself – I imagine there's also a broader space where FPGAs are playing a role in some of the ancillary devices around there. Uh, What can you tell us about that? Because there's a whole range of areas around... Image recognition, speech recognition, we, you know, we used to sort of speech to text and so forth. And now we've got smart mm-hmm. uh, speakers. You know, we, we sort of we, – we've either got, you know, Google or Amazon or, or, or Apple stuff in our phones. We've now got them in smart speakers. What are some of the other areas that you're sort of working on? I, I know your core remit is sort of the data center space, but you must have some other bits where the FPGAs are sort of interconnected from the core environments, whether it's public cloud or private centralized mm-hmm. data center environments, to the to the edgy bits. What can you tell us about that space?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, not only the edge, but all the way to the endpoints in the IoT. So uh, we're we're fortunate enough to have, enough to have a scale in our product family and different architecture types. If you go beyond FPGAs, all the way through Intel, to be able to go into very you know small IoT devices, all the way into the the big iron, if you will, in the core. So we spend a lot of time working cross-functionally across our verticals to make. Compatible solutions as we can. So there's 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 data center core, there's data center edge, and then there's edge like retail edge, and then there are multiple edges, right? Um, And but you're exactly right. The 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 way that we are able to um, innovate is by is by capitalizing on efficiencies in our own development, so that we can create compatible solutions. So it could be compatible solutions across that whole spectrum. So as an example, it, maybe it's working with Microsoft on these core smart NICs I was just talking about, but the ability to deploy those at the edge, in the Microsoft Azure edge, you know, in, in the hybrid cloud situation and the and the private enterprise, um, that's a very powerful connected tissue because, as you kind of said, the world is flat. And um, that's one, one phenomenon. Another phenomenon is that specifically in like the ai space we're investing heavily in natural language processing and recommender systems and that that's such something those applications uh touch all of our daily lives and sometimes whether we like it or not if i say the name of the alexa thing that i have in my home or the siri they're going to (laughs) wake up and my you know my (laughs) my my electromagnetic waves are going to or my sound waves are going to convert and then go all the way up into the cloud so we just launched a new FPGA that has uh kind of turbocharged enhanced uh dsps it's quite an engineering feat actually that um that gives – well, we just have a demo with a partner now with Myrtle that takes the WaveNet vocoder, voice uh, coder, and it does 8x the channel density. Uh, I forget what it is, like 16 kilohertz channels. If you go to 32 kilohertz channels, it's uh, it's 16x, so we linearly scale to 16x, whereas we do the same benchmark on a GPU, and they lose efficiency. So they scale um, down by 4x where we scale down by 2X as you go twice the channel complexity. It's just, And it's just a perfect, there's a white paper on that that uh, I can point your listeners to later, a white paper and a, just a simple demo on it. But what it really highlights is that FPGAs, is the utility of these things and um, how the performance of a GPU can be very modal, just based on the microarchitecture, the way it's built, with the really high performance, uh, you know, like a Ferrari engine, and then... Uh, you put the the memory hierarchy around it, and if you kind of um, go off of what they're optimized for, they lose performance, they lose efficiency, the latencies go way up, which is really important in speech processing. With the FPGA, we're we're much more of a spatial architecture, and with this turbo kind of souped up DSP in our new Stratix 10 uh, NX family, we uh, you know we can keep the performance up even in you know if you change the the model type or you change the number of parameters, the size or the, you know, the, the codec that you're doing. So that's led to some really nice results for us. And we're, we're fitting in a, in a really nice niche in the AI space, a
1: large and growing one. It's enormous growth opportunity there. And, and, uh, there are a number of things that I just wanted to circle back briefly. I mean, you've touched on some amazing uh, uh, overall trends that are driving it. You know, I've seen some projects come out that Intel's working on. I know where there's an organization that used to make fairly dumb speakers and capture the audio in, say, ho- uh, hospital rooms and then bring that back into a data center and a cloud environment and use your technology to work out, did I just drop a pillow or was that a human being that fell on the ground? or? Um, and they're getting yeah. even smarter now that if someone goes to the bathroom and they can detect the the, the movement of fluid and if, if it's the right amount of fluid, if someone's not drinking enough water, now they're talking about using your tech and particularly FPGAs, I'm sure, to put that intelligence in the device in the room so they're not having to move the data across the network, they can potentially keep that data more secure. And I, I guess we're doing that. We're seeing that where... I guess in many ways, I treat mobile phones like little early adoption spaces where we have these generic things that are very powerful, very smart, and we put some apps in them, they do certain stuff. But just like the, and we won't, you know, I put all my devices to sleep beforehand, so we won't say it out loud. But if you have a, a smart agent in some form of speaker and you say something, it will capture that waveform, send it off to the cloud, process it, whether it's, you know, listening to a song and trying to figure out whose song it is in the title or whether it's just a command. Um, we're well now we're seeing that with like you know tracking things like bird sounds in the field, where sensors are telling us whether animals are moving around, water moving in pipes, and I, I find this fascinating because there are a whole bunch of these use cases that we hadn't really anticipated that you already had the tech to apply to, but now you're fine-tuning that technology to put it even further and further and more immersed. And I imagine that's that's right playing all the way into now autonomous things and intelligent planes and intelligent screens and you know, not just the cute thing of, hey, you know, what's the time and the date and the weather or how do I bake these these cakes? But really critical life-saving things, which is more and more important, uh, particularly given where we are now in 2020 with the pandemic, and that is mm-hmm. that, you know, you can have smart devices checking your heart rate or whatever the case may be. Are there any real outliers you've seen there that you can highlight, I guess, just the fun factor bits that were, were sort of not expected but, but really changed the way that some of these things are done? I imagine cars are an example where, Cars moving around. We had FPGAs looking at managing the the, the actual machinery in the engine, but then all of a sudden, fuel efficiency became a thing, and then the environment there, and then the entertainment. Th- there must be some areas that you just mm-hmm. look at and go, you know what? We we probably could have figured that out, but that was just out <laughs> there. I mean, you must have a few fun examples like that where the FPGAs is being applied in ways you hadn't expected, whether it's in the data center or yeah. in the infrastructure or at the at the edge, uh, the down at the device level.
0: Yeah, I mean, i'm I'm it goes from the kind of wow factor to the little bit more mundane or it's under the hood. So we don't really think about it. And I, I don't drive the automotive space, no pun intended. I'm, that's not my, <laughs> uh, my end market, but you know, I'm definitely watching the trends there. And I remember even back when I was in Motorola and we we're talking about the intelligent car and uh, you know, uh, working with the BMW and the likes of BMWs and the more advanced engineering auto companies and the fact that they could detect whether the driver was asleep, I thought like the, they're getting drowsy and then they would buzz you. you know I think that's a thing now that's a that's yeah, a feature yeah. and and so what was science fiction before? And I have this theory, by the way, Des, that everything you know in technology is driven from Star Trek. Like we're oh. all just rep, trying to replicate.
1: The, oh, 100 percent with so. you. <laughs> well, remember, it was it Arthur, that- Arthur C. Clark Was Arthur C. Clarke that said a sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic? So, you know, you're absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, exactly. particularly our generation who exactly. grew up with Star Trek, right?
0: Totally. Yeah. So, you know, that I thought was that had a, a great wow factor, and I, I have. We were laughing earlier. Like I happened to drive a. Um, uh, Tesla and it has the auto driving capability, um, so the navigation capability and that that in itself is quite amazing to me. Even though I have, I feel like I have to babysit. you know, I'm of a certain age, of, you know, um, <laughs> but I, I feel like I have to babysit that. But that's coming along quickly yeah. too. But even some, think about something even um, more mundane as going and doing a Bing search. When you're when you do a Bing search, it's running through one of our devices. So there's the Microsoft Catapult, pretty famous Catapult program that ended up dovetailing into Bing search acceleration um, and into ultimately uh, Brainwave. And they have a really excellent uh, toolkit for AI that they use for multiple things. But you just do a Bing search and you get your – not only do they accelerate it, but it's a recommender system, so it'll come back and – and really enhance your experience so that you get uh, quicker access to the things that you really want. And it's this sort of insatiable um, need for this data processing where the utility of our device just just skyrockets. Um, So.
1: Yeah, and I I love the fact that you can build use cases on it, right? I mean, you know... um I test drove a little Audi the other day and uh, I got haptic feedback as I went from one lane to another because it recognized I was Mm -hmm. leaving the lane because it recognized white lines on the road. And my son was with me. I said, oh, what the hell is going on the steering? He said, oh, it's probably lane detection. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, And I would physically get the pressure on the steering wheel in the form of, you know, quote unquote, haptic feedback. As I went from lane to lane, it would try to skew me back into my lane thinking, oh, you might be breaking the rules and about to drive off the road. Right. But I got used to it very quickly and all of a sudden my brain went, you know, I'm going from lane to lane. I expect the car to resist. It was interesting. But, yeah, there's some amazing uh, examples of that around the world. And I, I love the fact that it's, it's you and your team and Intel around the world thinking inside the labs about how are we going to make this easier to adopt, how are we going to make it more cost effective, how are we going to reduce that time to market and drive you know, business benefit from service providers and whatnot and, and device builders, but more right. importantly, save lives, make life better, improve our well-being, and that, that just, to me, that's like you know a, a, re, a reason for being, right? What's the purpose of this thing? That when I think
0: technology about, with a with a heart, right? It's well, technology literally with a heart, literally, yeah. Out. But yeah, I don't, I don't want to envision a, I don't want to live in a world that's the Wall E. Remember
1: that movie, mm, mm. the
0: Wall E creation? That's a brilliant movie. I don't movie. want to live in that world. And in fact, uh, if, any, it was.
1: if anyone hasn't seen that yeah. Wall-E movie, definitely go watch it. it uh, it's, it's, a, it's a life changer. There's some key well, challenges maybe. and opportunities around the adoption of FPGAs there. When, I, when, we, you know, when we're talking to people either yeah. in, inside boardrooms or we're talking to engineering teams, there's awareness, there's education, there's hands-on, there's running of trials and proof of concepts. It's finding the appropriate business partner in your ecosystem within Intel or even potentially talking directly to the Intel and, and people like yourself. I wonder if you can give us your take on the key challenges and opportunities that you and your team are seeing around the world regarding yeah. the adoption of of APGDAs, of and I guess also your eASics in the health space, and what your general sense of the yeah. market readiness is, because I think there's some very broad things that you're, you're going to have your finger in the pulse of that we may not have considered.
0: The market's ready for solutions to problems and, and always has been, so to me – the, the FPGA is the underlying hardware, and it has a certain type of complexity because of its spatial architecture. And w- what we need to do is demystify it, or ideally, just hide the complexity completely from the the end user or the our customer that's uh, trying to solve a problem. And let me let me be a little bit more specific. So, I I, I told you this story um, last week when we talked. Um, you know, when I look over the, the decades, at least, that I've been involved in the industry, you and I were kind of um, bonding over the fact that we had both done assembly language programming on the old 8085 CPU. And it used to be that that's, that's how you did it, and that's how you optimized your code. Like, what was code? There weren't, you know, real mature compilers and high-level languages at the time. And and there was just a huge investment and a big push. Obviously, you know, Intel's legendary in that Um uh, in, in developing that ecosystem. And, uh, you know, CPUs, they're they are quite complex when you look under the hood. But if we didn't have all these tools and languages and libraries and history and ecosystem, um, you know, they might be considered hard to adopt, but we don't think about that anymore because it's basically easy now, and we're all trained in it. Now, uh, GPUs, you look at what NVIDIA has uh, done, you know, kudos to them, um, 10, 10-ish, years ago with cuda and trying to demystify and hide the complexity of programming a, a gpu which has its own you know different and related and different set of complexities and, and yeah you just look at it and you say they've done a good job with that and um uh, that's made it easier and you can see the business results that have come and that the adoption and, and problem solving that they've been able to do in in ai now i happen to believe that that's a That's the mid. That's the that's the second quarter of the game, you know. So, you know, we're entering the second half, as it were. And Intel has been excellent in acquiring technologies and investing in technologies from, you know, spatial to, um, you know, vector processing to traditional scalar processing and so on. So we have all these different kind of hardware complex products. And it's about platforms. It's about everything I just mentioned, libraries and compilers and high-level languages. We have been embarking on this journey as well at Intel and PSG to make the FPGAs more uh, easily deployable at scale. So it's things like um, the new Intel OFS, the uh, Open FPGA stack that we've just delivered into the open ecosystem uh, that was launched, I think, this quarter. Um, and that's transformative because it, it really delivers to the customer and our customers that are building in solutions for for end customers and users. It gives them a common foundation. Why should they work on optimizing how a PCI Express interface works or an Ethernet port or you know some of these common interfaces? Let them just work on the value add that they're trying to do to differentiate and, and uh, solve a problem. So that's just one stack component. There's, Intel has an initiative called One API, which is a, um, I believe it's called DC, uh, DPC++ so data parallel C++. So it's extensions to the ubiquitous C++ language that hide the complexity of of data parallelism, data parallelism in the fundamental hardware architecture underneath. So you can write in a high level language and uh, and have mobility of workloads between FPGAs and CPUs and GPUs and XPU as we talk about AI even devices. So that's the promise of one API, and that's how you succeed. So I, I think of this as like the third generation of you, if you will, where FPGAs are now coming up to, um, you know, up to par on. Um, ease of programming, and that 's going to stimulate the development of applications and IP and workloads and and I think you 're going to see a, a hockey stick in the growth in, in the traditional FPGA market as a result of that.
1: I love your uh, game analogy and puns they 're brilliant w- Where are you seeing quick wins for the when we i mean there's some obvious ones in the hyperscalers that we 've sort of talked about. Are, are you seeing any particular quick wins when we think about some of those challenges and opportunities? if we focus on the opportunities? Uh, you know, some of the spaces around the Internet of Things or the industrial Internet of Things and certainly healthcare, are there any uh, sort of outliers you've seen where people have been able to leverage your technology in the form of FPGAs in the sporting ecosystem that you've just mentioned that uh, you can sort of give us as uh, either anecdotal or, or use cases where they've sort of stood out and gone, you know what, financial services or healthcare or education has leveraged a bunch of data processing in some ways using FPGAs that we hadn't anticipated. E- early wins, if you like.
0: Uh certainly have to abide by my NDAs and not disclosing too much <laughs> before they're public. But I know you, you want your scoop there. Um, uh, but, yeah, we're having uh, de- definitely a lot of natural uh, halo effect success in the smartNIC space. So the whole area of infrastructure acceleration is kind of exploding right now. There's a lot of interest in it, and this new platform that we launched is going to be – Transformative, and the early demand signals are are incredible. Um, so that's great. Uh, in the AI space, we've had uh, some of our key customers. Um, uh, you, uh, let me put it this way: you know that the Microsoft I was talking about catapult and being acceleration and brainwave. So um, they 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 recently released a research paper that talks a lot about the AI use cases and the number formats and um, from different types of floating point formats and uh, your audience may be savvy enough to understand, you know, the difference between training and inference and, um, and the the different complexities there. So Microsoft has been one of our key customers and partners in that. And I think there's, there's more interesting things to come around that, but you know, Microsoft is a great with brainwave. They have a great tool chain and, and obviously the scale to do amazing things that bridge from the core data centers in Azure to, to the edge um, and Microsoft even goes all the way to the to the endpoints in some cases, right? So um, that's a little bit of a tease on that. Um, Ryan, yeah, and we've got definite interest from the banking industry, FSI, which I know is near and dear to your, uh, you and your family's heart. And so, look at how we uh, process financial transactions and do risk uh, risk analysis and using uh, AI ML techniques there is transformative for that industry. You look at um, another vertical segment that I drive is uh, we call it blockchain uh, acceleration. One of the killer apps for blockchain has been cryptocurrency um, mining, but even that has gone through rapid transformation in the the past several years, as you you may know. Um, So, the spatial architecture of the FPGA works super well there, and EASIC is now gaining some traction as a, as a really interesting technology because that's an arms race. You know anything, anything in the currency uh, trading space. So there's there's a lot going on in that industry. Any industry does that you see a rapid transformation, you see nascent standards, you see um, number types and, and bit widths changing. Um, obviously that lends itself to our natural strength in CPU. However, you know, do, doing do, bit swizzling isn't the hallmark of the CPU. It's something that an FPGA and a spatial architecture and programmable hardware is really, really good at. Uh, um, so that's the power right there of working with a company on the scale of Intel to deliver those those solutions. But, yeah, those are some of the early um, you know, early indicators of some things that we're driving.
1: Indeed, and, and I promise you I wasn't trying to catch you out there for the uh, front page of the New York Times that were. But uh, uh, I think, you know, we've touched on a range of broad things that, that people might traditionally think about with regard to kind of the transition from a general-purpose computer to sort of a graphics processing unit being treated like a big math processor to then FPGAs entering the game in ways that we may have thought of, as you said, in the traditional use of the infrastructure like smart NICs and and intelligent things that go from network and storage and, and then in between the compute and we've talked broadly about some of the areas where it's like inside devices or at the edge. I love the example you gave where Microsoft started using FPGAs in Bing uh, and their Azure infrastructure because that to me was, was something that was – it just happened. You know, as we're using Bing, the search engine, we didn't know it, but also not just the recommendation engine but all the, the tech behind it, whether it was crawling or indexing because there's some big wins there and not, not just the time but also the reduced cost of processing that costs less power – uh, they're spending less time. You know, there's all of those flow on benefits. Uh, and, and, you know, we've seen mm-hmm. the work you've done with Microsoft with the, their uh, Microsoft Azure public cloud space. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, financial services industry, FSI are now looking at that, whether it's document processing, finding, you know, comparing signatures or looking for transfer compliance and governance. and all those kinds of things. And now we're being touched with the likes of having to look for compliance around things like privacy and, and data protection, data treatment and GDPR and so forth globally in Europe. Um, I wonder, in, yeah. and, and, and even in there, it's commoditized, you know. and people will probably know this in the audience, but just to highlight it, that if you just go and have a look at what, what Intel's done with the FPGAs in their relationship with Microsoft around making uh, you know, a less traditional, uh, what we would traditionally call deep uh, learning neural networks, And traditional algorithms like ResNet fifty and others, and ResNet one five two that are available in various zones, where some investment made in having those FPGA's in particular zones and regions and bits of hardware. That's I can get that at the end of my credit card for twenty five bucks. You know that to me, that's a such a mind boggling concept that I, at the cost of twenty five bucks, as it were, effectively speaking, I can swipe my credit card, jump on Azure and get access to your technology now that you're working on today at the bleeding edge and change the right. way I do stuff, make it faster, leaner, cheaper, smarter, what, and flow it on. I'm sure people are doing that with healthcare around the COVID-19 research. When when we think about that space, though, so, um, and again, without giving away secrets, I wonder if you can walk us through the sort of traditional journey that Intel customers and partners are going through in the approach to finding successful business benefits, technology benefits with the adoption of FPGAs. When I think about you know, whether it's a bank or, or wealth management or insurance company in the FS, uh, FSI space or whether it's transport, logistics, aviation, whatever. Irrespective of the industry group in the market sector, I mean, I know supply chain are looking at benefits there for a bunch of reasons because this year has changed the game. What's that normal journey like from the Eureka moment Was like, you know, we, we need to do something different the way we treat data as maybe Microsoft did with the, the Bing search engine. What is the yeah. normal journey like that that, that Organizations go through with the partners and your customer ecosystem to get to the point with having a conversation with those partners, integrators, and, and research teams, or even Intel directly, to find those successful outcomes. What are the natural steps that people should be thinking about going through so they can benefit from that? From hearing this conversation.
0: Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question, and it, my mind always comes around to total cost of ownership, so TCO, and that's what I'm sure many of your listeners are are paying attention to on a daily basis. They need to get more efficient, whether they're a small enterprise or a large enterprise or a a cloud data center. Um, That's what really matters in their decision-making. I will basically, let me do a quick callback and just add on that the, and this is related to TCO, is that the FEGA, um, what stimulated this thought in me is when you were talking about the math Okay, so GPUs and doing math processing, and I, I love I happen to really love linear algebra. Like I could write code to do <laughs> matrix vectors, you know, matrix inversion all day. I just I love that stuff. Um, however, you know, you don't find that naturally occurring in nature a lot, where the data is just sitting there in memory in an in an array and a and a vector ready to be operated on. And especially not at the scale that we on the planet are all generating data. So my, the point that I'm trying to make is that every data comes from somewhere, and it either you know goes into the bit bucket or it just you know needs to be operated on so you can get some real insights to make people's lives better. But it might be uh, that you're going to take some input data, and it's always going through a transformation. We talked about sound to you know light mm. waves and so on, but you know to be more. Mm, to kind of be more practical about it, you might have data that comes in encrypted. So you need to decrypt it and then you need to um, uncompress it before you can operate and do your math that you're talking about. You have to format it. You have to remove frames. Or, you know, there's a lot of ancillary functions that one does in order to just do the AI. And that, that gets forgotten sometimes. It's, uh, I've been around the industry long enough to know that you need to solve problems at the system level and not in a microcosm. So if your architecture is modal and it's high performance for a certain part of the application, what if that part is only 10% of the overall latency delay characteristics? So that's a case where more and more we're trying to enable the FPGAs to have a blended, sometimes we call it uh, AI plus or plus AI. So if you're doing the AI, yeah, you're accelerating that, but you're also accelerating the rest of the workload around it from an end-to-end perspective. So that's where the FPGAs are really, again, excellent and high utility. So if you get to your question uh, back to connect it to TCO, what CIOs, CEOs, and um, others are uh, even just network uh, administrators and operators thinking about is why should I have two cards to do the same thing? As an example, why should I have a storage host bus adapter if I have a disaggregated data center, my server needs to talk to a storage box that's somewhere else, right, in the network connected to the switch. Do I need to have a separate storage interface that my application talks through and then a, another card just to do the NIC to get me into my my normal network traffic to maybe it's a Hadoop cluster or something? The answer is no. So with our new platform, you're blending those two storage and network acceleration use cases All on the same device, and again, I was talking about that platform that has the Xeon D, SOC along with a high-performance FPGA. So that's that's um, integration. It's value through integration. Right. If we talk about AI, should I have a card that's just that's doing uh, video processing, video decode, let's say? And then shuttling it off to a, an Intel Quick Assist card, that, let's say for encryption services, and then bringing it back in, and then putting it out to a GPU. Um, no, you know, not necessarily. If you can do that all in one one card, one system, that's the, the, the that's the simplicity and the efficiencies that we're trying to gain as we go through. And then uh, another thing, you know, in terms of decisions. So TCO, right? That's natural TCO if I have to buy one card instead of two. You know, you got to look at cost and power, of course, but those those tend to be big wins and self-evident. Uh, so we're driving for solutions in that space. And then the way we work with our ecosystem, always around the FPGA industry, harbor vendors like us. We have uh, a lot of smaller companies that invest in in um, IP, okay, intellectual property. There's software vendors that develop something, whether it's a video codec or it's a you know a translation. Engine to talk to NVMe drives, right? So through an FPGA, there's a lot of uh, smaller companies like that. We engage them very much because, as big and high scale that Intel is, uh, we can't develop every piece of IP. You know, every Intel sells a lot of CPUs, but we don't write all the applications that everybody ever uses. So you need that ecosystem. So part of that whole decision making process, at the end of the day, people that you know pay us for the value is to um, take our hardware, take our, our foundational stacks and libraries and things that are in there um, and uh, that come with the FPGA and then integrate in some you know, innovative software vendor that has a solution to a problem they care about. And if the TCO works, off to the races. So that's our job every day.
1: Uh, I love it. I love that phrase off to the races. That's a classic phrase that we use over here in Australia. Well, we've covered a we've covered a range a, of very broad topics around the the macro trends. We've talked about some of the challenges and opportunities in business of technology and the adoption. You give us some great insights on on what Intel's doing with regard to your partners and customers, in finding ways to to derive successful business or technology benefits and and so forth from the FPGA opportunity. I wonder if we can wrap up with one last question, and it's a bit of a crystal ball gazing thing I like to do with my guests, if you don't mind, and that is that if I was going to say to you, Jim, if you were to gaze for a moment into a virtual crystal ball uh, in a general sense. And and you've got a very unique lens in a very positive way, given your role and your background and so forth. What do you think's coming over the horizon next 12 to 18 months um, in this space? Because it is moving very quickly, all things considered. What are some of the things that people should be thinking about right now, potentially talking about in their boardrooms or even developing plans or strategies to action on in 2021 and beyond to sort of to look at FPGAs as, as an opportunity to gain those, you know, uh, reduce the total cost of ownership, reduce the time to market, just find ways to improve what they're, they're doing for their customers. What's your gut sense of what's coming over the horizon the next 12 to 18 months that people should probably be talking about today? Well,
0: let's talk about two different things. One is infrastructure and the other is application acceleration. So we're working on application sol- you know, level solutions, as we talked about, with with AI, and it may just get down to natural language processing. Do you want to do, do you have a, you know, does your audience have a problem they want to do a speech to text or text to speech, a kind of transformation and do it at some scale, you know, high channel density and scale their business. So we have an excellent product for that. And we have a number of Myrtle is one and we have other, close partners that have solutions exactly in the combinations that I was just talking about. So you kind of gave me the framework of a, a year, year and a half. That's, that's what I would want to um, suggest that people think about. Um, you, you can you naturally go towards a GPU solution um, that look for something more off the shelf. But if we can do 8x the performance, 16x the channel density, um, and all other things being equal, why wouldn't you look for a solution like ours? You, it's a competitive world out there and you want to differentiate. So that, that's one way to, to do it. The other way, uh, the other thing to talk about is the infrastructure acceleration. So this new SmartNIC platform that we have is gaining a lot of traction um, and it's got utility. Our customers are thinking about thinking about ways to use it that we didn't even think about when we came out with it. So um, that gives uh, any cloud vendor or, uh, or any cloud customer or anyone that deploys into a data center the ability to differentiate if they want to and at the pace that they want to. So it gets, it breaks them of the ASIC cycle. With, we were talking about that every three-year kind of cadence. Uh, th- there is no off-the-shelf SmartNIC that just does what a customer, you know, uh, it has a, <laughs> a spec sheet of these are the functions that it does and and nothing else. It's meant to be programmable. So if you're a large enterprise and you're making decisions about how to um, reduce bottlenecks within your own infrastructure in a TCO-friendly way, you can save millions of dollars every year and, and increase the application performance of whatever services you're delivering to your constituency, internal or an external customer, you know, if you can get your application performance up by 2x 4x or even 10x in some cases uh, simply by doing things different in your infrastructure that's a that's a place where we absolutely can help and uh, you asked me a crystal ball question and I didn't mean to turn that into a commercial, but I'm saying our crystal ball and the in the bets you know that we're laying down in in terms of our investments is in developing the solutions to make what I just mentioned. Uh, not a crystal ball but actually something that that lands
1: on your desk oh i like that i love that very much it um uh what a fantastic wrap-up no uh, there's some great points in there and i think you will will you've mentioned a couple of really great things around demo videos and some of the white papers and other references and we'll make sure those are linked in the show description for everybody to to go and view those example videos and to get access to the white papers and some of the examples around some of the platforms you could potentially get your hands on to do a a proof a concept or run a trial, or even particularly go out and use it in a public space such as a a public cloud and so forth, or even potentially you know trial it on multiple search engines see <laughs> if it goes faster jim it's been fascinating yeah. spending an hour with you. Thank you so much for making time i i'm I could probably listen to you all day on the depth and breadth you've got on your life experience and and what you bring to the role currently here at Intel and and your own hands-on experience in implementing some of these. But I do like the two key points that we'll wrap up, and that is that if you've got an infrastructure or a software problem that you're solving and, and you're looking to do things like compress time, reduce the movement of data, bring some of your costs down, or even potentially just run it greener and produce less carbon, there are so many options that yourself and your team at Intel have made available that are, as you said, effectively off the shelf now and can be tailored, that I think it behooves every one of our listeners and their associates and, and so forth to to get up to speed with it. And 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 we we know they're listening to to do just that. But also go and do some homework, do some reading and get the hands on some of those white papers and watch those demo videos and see exactly what you and your team are doing inside the cloud business unit there, uh, within the programmable solutions group at Intel. Uh, and and challenge themselves in 2021 to reduce some costs, reduce time, add value to what their their supply chain or their, whatever the case may be, business is doing, and um and, and and potentially save money, save lives. Jim, thanks so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to have you back on the show again soon, and I know our audience is going to love this, and, and pass it on to their associates. I hope you and your your family and your team at there at Intel stay safe for the rest of the period. I hope you have a fantastic uh, a Christmas break over the Christian holiday. And hopefully, we'll have you back next year for to uh, continue the conversation. And see how it's been running from there, and then maybe check in some of those crystal ball predictions.
0: <laughs> I look forward to it, Des. It's been great to meet you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And uh, this is definitely a highlight of my day. If not my entire career. And uh, really, thank you for the opportunity to speak to this.
1: You are far too kind. We will definitely have you back. Folks, thanks for tuning in. We'll look forward to seeing you in the next show. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have uh, Jim Dworkin, Senior Director for the Cloud Business Unit in the programmable Solutions Group at Intel on the show, and we will definitely have him back. And if you've got any other questions, send them to us, either post it with one of the hashtags that you follow with us and, and the Intel uh, conversation on Twitter and LinkedIn or reach out to the team directly. We'll have plenty of links in the show description. Stay safe, Jim. Uh, have a great Christmas, and we will catch you soon. You too. Thanks.